0: All three caravans of the Travelling Symphony are labelled as such. The Travelling Symphony lettered in white on both sides, but the lead caravan carries an additional line of text, because survival is insufficient.
1: I'm not going to die just because you are. She forces him back and they roll all the way to Delphine's fence. The old goat bleeds panic. It isn't fair. He pushes on top of her again rolls her towards the brink as she attempts to pull her arm free to punch him. Here's the edge. There's no wall to protect them. Holy shit, holy shit, they're going to fall. Over the ledge they go. Cora grabs a coil of loose V-bar. The sick boy clings to her waist. I don't want to die.
2: Welcome to this episode of Lady Fiction, which tackles the topic that currently makes the world go round. The global COVID pandemic already in its second year. this fall, we're looking at what some in Europe, where I'm based, call the fourth wave, with many countries struggling to roll out vaccination campaigns and granting fair distribution and access to the vaccines around the globe. The US has missed its goal to have 70% of adults vaccinated by the 4th of July by millions of shots. And in schools and at universities, we're debating the return to in-presence teaching and the protection of kids and teachers from infection. So in this episode of Lady Fiction, we try to make sense of our pandemic present by looking at literature that tackles post-pandemic futures. And I'm happy to say that to tackle this task, the format will be a little bit different from the norm. I will discuss today two novels by women writers from Canada, Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven from 2014 and Larissa Lee's The Tiger Flu, which came out in 2018. Both novels imagine a pandemic hitting North America and the globe and address the subsequent collapse of Western civilization as we know it, in the near and in the far future. Both novels can be read as post-apocalyptic speculative fiction with a feminist twist, which makes them so intriguing for lady fiction. Both feature female heroine or artists coming to grips with a world fundamentally altered by a pandemic with collapsing institutions, technologies, and nomenclatures, and with a struggle for survival. Station 11 and the tiger flu offer some speculative outlooks at the questions that that are so pressing to us these days. How and where will we live? What will be the new normal? Is there such a thing as normalcy? What will be our cultural archives, our new identity stories, our place in the world after COVID? And I'm super happy to say that the other innovation for today's episode is that I have today not one, but two Americanist scholars from the University of Augsburg, helping me maybe answer some of those questions. So welcome to Ina Batzke and Linda Hess. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. So before we dive in, I'd like to quickly introduce Ina and uh, Linda. Ina Batsky is a postdoctoral researcher who specializes in life writing and critical refugee studies. And her monograph, Undocumented Migrants in the United States, Life Narratives and Self-Representations, was published in 2019 with Routledge. She has co-edited a volume on the citizenship in American literature and most recently the collection Life Writing in the Post-Human Anthropocene, which came out uh, this year with Paul Grave. Presently, her research focuses on feminist technoscience and eco-criticism in speculative fiction, which makes her a perfect guest for today. Linda Hess is a senior lecturer and Ina's colleague at the University of Augsburg. With Ina, she has co-edited the volumes exploring the fantastic genre, ideology, and popular culture, and life writing in the post-human Anthropocene. She's also the author of the monograph Queer Aging in North American Fiction, which was published with Palgrave in 2019, and she has published on eco-criticism, age studies, queer studies, and humor studies. And so in diving right into the two novels with my fabulous two guests, I'd like to you know start by asking you a little bit about your impressions of the two novels. and maybe you, we could talk about how the novels work, uh, how your reading experience was. Uh, so our listeners will have a little bit of a framing for this pandemic literature panel today.
0: Okay, maybe I can just start. Yeah, I think what happened to me um, is something that happened to many readers, especially with those two novels. Um, I encountered them both basically pre-pandemic. Um, I mean, they were both published pre-pandemic, right? And I read them both in pre-pandemic times, so basically whatever in 2015 maybe in 2019. And then I read them as speculative fiction, right? They were grand novels that um, were great entertainment, but the fears described in them were of course not as real as they became when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. So then basically last year, um, Linda and I, um, but also through my teaching, um, I decided to basically go back to especially the tiger flu. And rereading both novels was really an uncanny experience because suddenly what you read was basically much closer to what you experience every day than what it was before. So that may be just as a, as a kind of personal anecdote to how these novels came into my both personal and academic life. Um, and I think it was somewhat similar for you, Linda, as well, right? Yeah, I can absolutely agree. I mean, I read the tiger
1: flu first, so the later one of of the books. And at first I wasn't familiar with uh, St. John Mandel. And what happened then was that now after, you know, 2020, there's this one scene, especially in station 11, which, you know, starts in pre-pandemic times and then goes into the pandemic, whereas tiger flu already begins like after the pandemic has been going on for a while. But in Station Eleven, there's a scene where one of the protagonists gets a phone call from his friend who works at the hospital who tells him, look, we have this flu coming in. And it's really serious. And and the protagonist, Jivan is in the bus at that moment. And he sort of, like, looks around and is like, okay, people are breathing. Like, do they have this? What am I touching? And that was so, like, Ina said, so uncanny because that is something that we can relate to so... <laughs> Uh, viscerally right now so yeah I think definitely um, these novels went from being speculative fiction in our reading experience to be a lot less to feel a lot less speculative in many of their aspects.
2: Mm -hmm. It's it's transitioned from being intriguing and interesting to oh my god I'm in the middle of this (laughs) and (laughs) what happens if things go really poorly or badly for us as they do for the characters in the novels um so there's there's a real a real threat also attached suddenly to reading this kind of pandemic literature because it might happen to us it might come out the pandemic might turn out in various ways as it maybe does in these novels what do you think Ina
0: Yeah, on the other hand, I think there's also basically the opposite happening, right? Because speculative, well, sales of speculative fiction and especially of um, Station 11 increased rapidly during the times of the pandemic, right? Um, And that is, of course, not only, well, not necessarily due to the fact that we want to learn more about the threat, but to some degree, I think these speculative texts also help people make sense of the situation, right? Especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, we kind of reached a time where we couldn't basically base on a life on facts anymore. There was no factual information we could make sense of or factual information basically changed every other week. And I think that was interesting because then people actually turned again to speculative fiction, to kind of be able to imagine what could be. Um, and of course, these novels are not only bleak, Right And they not only describe basically the pandemic as a threat so I think it's also some kind of well a making sense mechanism maybe um, that helps people understand the situation better because whatever they hear on the news or on television does not really help to to get a grasp on the situation
2: mm. I think it's the creative part that makes it you know visceral as, as Linda said mm-hmm. before I, I would I would challenge you a little bit on the p- point that we don't get facts. I do think we do get a lot of facts <laughs> some people don't like to listen to the facts or make up start making up their <laughs> own facts, so that's a different kind of story here but it's it's true that the media dissemination of information is felt overwhelming at times uh, yeah. and uh, you start remembering the times when we were all wearing those cute little cloth masks, you know, people were making fun about and people get, were getting creative with and now it's all with the medical masks and the real looking around you, throwing your, your scarf around you and, and, and trying not to breathe at other people and being scandalized when people get too close to you. Uh, so it's the physical feeling that is so different from reading speculative fiction about something that might happen in the future and now we're in the pandemic and it's, it's hitting home. In an uncanny, prescient way, and which is that's why I'm so I'm so thrilled to have you here. And we talk about the pandemic literature finally on lady fiction. Let's maybe <laughs> let's maybe compare the two novels a little bit and talk about what happened, so listeners can get a grip. So Station Eleven to me was a little more, and I'm handling the books here, was a little more realistic. You um, know, you already said this. We start in a normal present. And then we go to a post-pandemic or pandemic and then post-pandemic future. And it's a contrapuntal, so we're going back and forth a little bit. It's an ordinary night uh, in Toronto and we start at the theater where a production of King Lear is being staged and the actor Arthur Leander, who plays King Lear, collapses on stage and dies just before the Georgia flu hits. And I think it's 98% of the global population die, right? So this is the beginning. We have an ordinary death, if that's if you can call it ordinary death on stage. And from there, we go into this crazy pandemic situation uh with various protagonists who are interrelated and we go I think up to 20 years into the future of this pandemic to the museum of civilization where nothing else works and the collapse. And then the tiger flu is I think more complex to deal with because we are already remotely removed far removed into the future uh, there's a different nomenclature for time so we're looking at the year 2145 and it's 127 years TAO time after oil which would bring the end the point of oil as in the fossil industry, fossil fuel industry, something around the mid-2020s to the 2030s. So um, this is really far into the future, maybe further than we can imagine now. And there are no more nation states. We have a United Middle Kingdom. Um, We have Cascadia, the North American continent where this is set. And um, everything's really a little bit more confusing. (laughs) And we have two narrators or two uh, heroes or heroines uh, who tell the story back and forth and who are also closely related. So towards the end of the novel, all the trouble more or less dissolves and it becomes clear uh, what the main conflict is all about. So we have to be careful not to spoil too many things. Whereas in Station Eleven, the story undulates through this struggle from the present into a post-pandemic future in the wilderness. And the question is what uh, Ina read, read about in the opening uh, quote about survival. What do we need to survive? And survival in and of itself is insufficient. So what, what, do, you, what do you find comparing those two is maybe remarkable for readers who are interested in the two novels?
1: So what I think is fascinating really about the tiger flu is that when you start out, you don't get that anchor point of like the normal present. You are dropped into this culture 127 years in the future basically, and you have to start making sense of it. And so we have Cora Ko is our one protagonist, her sections are told in the third person, but she's the focalizer, and we have Kirilo Grounzel, who is the other protagonist, and her chapters, so the chapters alternate, are told from the first-person point of view. And what is really fascinating is this world which is time after oil, so basically um, there's only remnants of petrol culture But there's still, like, a very forward movement of technology, and here the flu, the tiger flu, is um, actually fairly selective. So mostly it affects men, so it's almost like on the brink of, like, a single-sex society, women have to, like, basically run everything. Whereas in Station Eleven, we already said that's very compelling because it, like, picks us up, right? Like, in our sort of current anxiety moment. Um, but there, the flu is basically an accident. Like, it's it comes from elsewhere, it comes from Georgia, but we don't learn what it is about. And both novels, yeah, then kind of take up the thread of, like... What persists of the cultures before? What changes? And it's, it's also, it's an interesting world to be immersed in. And like with Larissa Lai, especially also just the way that she writes, she plays with pop culture, with language. That is also like another aspect apart from
0: the story itself that is very compelling. Yeah, maybe to go back to um, the quote I read about survival. Um, I mean, that is, of course, from um, Station Eleven. This survival is insufficient. I mean, originally it's from Star Trek, but anyhow. Um, and I think what's interesting is, and because there's a difference there between the two novels, in Station Eleven, I would say survival is very much future directed, but that future is imagined as some kind of version of the past. Because since it's only basically been 20 years, um, I think the, well, the memory of the past and also the, the relationships of the past and the fact that they all know how the past was. Uh, leads to the fact that what they want as a future is some version of the past. They want the past back. And that is totally different in the tiger flu because it's so far removed from a past, a time before, as it is called. Nobody remembers what the past is like. I mean, we do have these cultural memories um, and cultural artifacts, but nobody knows what they mean anymore or what they do. Um, so for them, the only way for, uh, to imagine survival, to imagine a future is really to imagine something different. And we can talk more about that, how that eventually works um, in this resolution of the tiger flu. But I think there's really a main difference there. And that is linked to the fact that on the one end, we have something that is 20 years removed from a pandemic. And on the other hand, we have something that is basically 150 years removed.
2: And what I find is so intriguing is that in the tiger flu, this memory of the past or history, capital H history, is incorporated. It's become a commodity and it's accessible only to a select few and this knowledge then makes those people who possess the knowledge of the past privileged, and the average average people that we read about in the tiger flu, so Cora Cole, for instance, has no knowledge of this past and only has glimpses every now and then by scales that she inserts into her into her brain. Where she can where she can find the knowledge, but this knowledge is there's no certainty to this knowledge, and there's no there's a roughness to the characters as a result of this lack of knowledge so if you don't know this is, seems to be to me one of the key key concepts of the tiger flu if you don't know your history, then it's really difficult. you have to go forage and find a new narrative story, origin story there's a disconnect. Between the past or maybe also your lineage, your family, what your family um consists of, because that's a key conflict in the tiger flu and what they've done, and you can't you can you can't really move forward unless you find out about the past and I think nostalgia is is key here in both novels, so what do we do with this pandemic that kills so many people and that also raises so much knowledge that's just lost? and gone there's no more storytelling no more identity formation through storytelling uh, you have to make up yourself as you go along as you make up your world and as you kind of survive this this where knowledge and culture and history have this weird linking thing going on
1: can i just uh, sort of j- jump in here because i think that that is the interesting because we in tiger flu we get a contrast right between this highly corporate run saltwater city that's one of the places where we are at where what you just described is happening where people can only have access to knowledge by buying those scales which is like tiny microchips that have information you just plug in your brain and then there's um for example the grist village which is the other main location but there's also another sort of um, a place which is the cordova dancing school for girls and there we have other sort of informal forms of knowledge so there it's about songs and chanting and dancing and it turns out so you mentioned foraging yeah there's something called the foraging dance which is basically going out and looking for food but it's called a dance so in this society because they can't rely on these formal former forms of knowledge they are then coming up with other ways to transport things intergenerationally and that's also really fascinating And then, of course, in Station Eleven, we have some culture that is is salvaged, uh, for example, via the Traveling Symphony, which, you know, brings sort of the culture forward by there. Maybe we're going to talk about this more.
0: Yeah, it, it might, however, make sense to also point out that we have a similar opposition in Station Eleven as well, because Linda already mentioned that we have um, this kind of, well, cultural knowledge, um, classical cultural knowledge, because Shakespeare is preserved. I mean, after all, this is how the novel starts, right? We have a staging of Shakespeare, and then we, throughout the novel, encounter the Travelling Symphony that also stages Shakespeare. But on the other hand, we also have a rather informal well distribution of knowledge and that is through the titular station 11 comic right um, that is also basically from the time before the pandemic and through various ways it travels basically into the post-pandemic time and then becomes very important there to one of the protagonists for various reasons so it's also interesting how something can become knowledge and a cultural artifact that was never envisioned as such mm-hmm. and that is of course also a very in- informal way of how knowledge can travel
2: and randomly also yes just because by coincidence um this so station 11 in the novel station 11 is a comic that one of the protagonists draws uh, and so there's a discourse about art and the artist's afterlife <laughs> through the work of art and while the artist dies i think we can say that her her life work lives on as does arthur leander's acting Also, weirdly so, through people remembering uh, giving interviews in newspapers that are all of a sudden produced again 15 years after the end of print culture. So there's a revival in a technique, the technique of newspaper making. And people come across bits and scraps and then they inscribe importance into this and collect it and put it into a kind of museum-like archive. So there's a, so what I find super interesting about Station 11 is that there's a, a plane that lands during the pandemic at, a city, at, at Severn City Airport somewhere around Lake Michigan, and um, the people on the plane start living there because they can't go anywhere. And so um, 15, 20 years after the pandemic and all these people on the airplane have survived because they were saved, there's a museum of civilization that they put up where they put up all their their dead iPhones, uh, their Nintendo consoles, their um, uh, motorbikes that have ran, ran out of fuel. The old people from the old world go there to reminisce and to be nostalgic. And then the the babies and the young people born after the pandemic, after the collapse, uh, what it's called in, Ty- in, in uh, Station 11, they go and they look at these things. And they don't understand what they're all about. So it's really also a question of the material culture of remembrance and history and civilization. It's a museum of civilization, which would imply that uh, in the post-pandemic future, there is no more civilization, but civilization is also the culture that is staged in the traveling symphony by Kirsten Ray- Raymond and her and her friends who go around and um, stage Shakespeare and play Beethoven, and it's a weird, also randomly remembered culture that is left over. Because of course, on the one hand, you can argue Shakespeare's world literature and it's highly heavily canonized, and Beethoven is as well. That's not property of. Uh, uh, German culture, but it's it's a it has global meaning. But they can only play it because they happen to be trained in this. Uh, so it's not like they compose new art, so to my mind. And then you have this random comic, Station Eleven, that's circulated and that people come across and that they find intriguing and that, that they then elevate to cultural importance because they like it. So it's really a phenomenon of canonized art that gets preserved because people are trained and then random popular art that is introduced because people like it and they find something in it that speaks to them it's a nice you know artistic uh meta commentary about artistic production how art becomes important to people and then they start preserving it and in the tiger flu there's no art in this Oh, is this, <laughs> yeah, what, do you, what do you think? It's not the same thing. I, I would argue. Okay, so here's my hypothesis: No art, in the tiger flu. Not in the same. Not in the same uh, vein. What do you think
1: about the tiger flu? I would say that this culture seems so. We were talking about this earlier, and this culture seems so remote in several ways from ours that we might not necessarily recognize something as art. I'm I'm not sure about the term art but what they do have is artifice. Mm-hmm. So they have learned how to make like these fibers out of mushrooms. They have learned how to like Kirlo is actually like a really skilled surgeon and she makes this narcotic drug and there's some point in the novel where she also says I am very good at this. So there's maybe not, you know, some sort of institutionalized art that people go and see because again we have this like highly privatized access to those kinds of things but there's other forms of artistic expression or artifice i think that that do come through in in this novel as as well and then of course we have sort of this these remnants of the pop culture in the chants um that help the grist sisters remember their own history and yeah uh, that's true
2: that's true maybe let's talk about that um so so the so so one of the experiencers in the novel or or first person narrator also is a gris sister and she is named after um a component of t c m traditional- Chinese medicine as are all the other gris sisters so there's a, a different epistemology that is introduced opposite the uh maybe dominant or hegemonic epistemology in the salt water in the in the in the center of this post pandemic civil or or this future civilization. And Kirlo is a groom, what she calls a groom, or what the Gris sisters calls a groom. And in an interview, uh Lai says that the Griss sisters are almost human. So there's a component where we're not sure they have anthropomorphous features, they're cloned, or they have found a way to, to reproduce that is not does not happen with male and female components and they basically use starfish characters to basically harvest organs yes <laughs> <laughs> i think that's what you could call so i mean it takes some time to get your head around this um so they're doublers and starfish and uh the doublers are the characters that can pop poppies that's what they call them so they can have offspring which would be genetic doubles. And then the starfish are purveyors or providers of organs when organs of the doublers fail. And those organs are then cut out by Kirlo the groom, who's really a doctor in our terms. And she expertly cuts them out and then transplants them and the starfish characters grow those organs back. And that's, you know, speculative techno science, I think. (laughs) Also, to a certain degree, something that we can't imagine at this point, but that might be coming. Who knows?
1: And also super interesting because the Grist sisters are originally cloned in Saltwater City as part of that corporate world. Um, they're basically produced as workers and then they escape and they found the Grist village where then they find this alternative form of, of reproduction that you just described but basically, they are produced first of all as expendable labor. Like they, they don't matter. And they also, there's a specific passage where Kirillov says, "I'm not a woman." Basically, so they, like you said, they, they look like women, but they are somewhat like post posthuman.
2: And they're really suspicious about sex, uh, <laughs> human sex. <laughs> so it makes them. It's really odd to them, and it really seems also very barbaric. I th- What I find intriguing is is how Lai has a, what she calls, socially conscious speculative uh, fiction angle on this. So the pandemic is man-made, the uh, breaks from our present, the defamiliarization from the present are all man-made, the world is is in eco- it's an ecological crisis. Uh, there are mutations, the rain is poisonous. Uh it's basically a sense that we get that this world that the tiger flu is set in can't go on for a long time. So you either have to to die, so you can't so it's a Darwinian uh, notion that you can't survive because you're not fit enough. So you have to really struggle, or you can upload yourself in one of the corporate mainframes that circulate the world there's two Tang and Eng and those corporate mainframes are a virtual holographic alternative or it's never resolved really what they are but um, you can abandon your body and be uploaded there and this is opposite what the Gris sisters believe Uh, the Gris sisters say we believe that body and mind belong together and when you die you're gone that's it. You can't just upload your soul somewhere else and then exist without the body uh, virtually in whatever mainframe archive this might be. And so it's really also more of a dystopian novel, I think, than, than Station Eleven. It shows us a future that we should think twice about <laughs> with the incorporation of knowledge, the capitalization of the human body and uh also, the reviving of the Caspian tiger, which is the beginning of the tiger flu, so the Caspian tiger was extinct, and uh, some people revived it from a tiger rug, and that starts the flu. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a,
0: a huge critical element in the novel, both with regards to how humans treat. Non humans and the environment, right? Because that definitely comes through through um, how the pandemic came about, um, as you just explained. Basically, the pandemic wouldn't have happened if humans did not decide to revive the tiger, because the tiger species was uh, at some point extinct, and then people decided to revive it through genetic engineering, and that caused the tiger flu. So that is basically a, a case of, of human hubris. Basically, that that evolved into this pandemic. And I think this, this also is still true for, for Saltwater City, right? With you, what you basically referred to with Chang and Eng, people still in, in Saltwater City, or at least the leaders of the so-called host society, um, they still believe that we can fix it. Right? Um, and I think this is a common, uh, common theme that is also discussed in, in terms of climate change debates, right? The question of, can we still fix it? Because, I mean, we are so advanced, right? We can develop new technology, like in the Tiger flu, Chang and Ang, and then everything will be good again. And the grist sensors are, are a, a sort of contrast to that, because that is not how they think. They kind of go back, as you said, to different epistemologies to live their life. Interestingly though, and I don't want to spoil too much, but the resolution of the novel basically goes to combining those kind of technologies mm-hmm. and knowledges to, to, to have a resolution at last. But I'll, I'll leave it for readers to explore that.
1: Yeah, I also think that. I mean in terms of can you know can technology save us? Can we still fix it? And this question of hubris, which was a huge one because it also seems to me like you know this, this reviving the tigers, is this, does this mean that we simply are to understand that humans have left the realm of what they're supposed to do? And I didn't find that a very satisfactory answer. And I think what comes through in this novel is really the critique of you can't do this and not think about the consequences of your actions. And there's also sort of this eco-critical element where even though the tiger flew mostly affects men and affluent people as well it's pretty much always the poorest people who pay the price who have to live Hmm. in the toxic environment who don't have enough to subsist and so the question is really if we if we want to have progress if we want to use that technology like what do we have to think about in order to do that responsibly and this also goes back to to ina's point of um, how do we treat non-humans how do we treat animals and those questions are picked up really like sort of all over the place in this novel and and i think i mean we both have read it (laughs) like several times now and you still always discover like new connections new things that that come up there
2: yeah and it's really an intriguing linkage also to the COVID perception because in the german in the german election cycles that we're in uh often climate the climate crisis has been called a virus so there's a, a direct linkage between the moment of being in a pandemic and then the the sense of survival that becomes so pressing when we have those hard rains, uh, when we have those crazy droughts, that we realize the world is changing and it's man-made, human-made. It's not about, as you said... Will we be able to turn back the scales and you know reset nature? <laughs> uh, I think we're beyond that question now. It's uh, will we be quick enough with our technologies? Will we have vaccination uh, enough for dealing with a pandemic? Will we have alternative settlement uh, strategies for dealing with the climate change and making sure it's a just distribution of access to those technologies where we all have to save ourselves. It's a global endeavor that we're faced with, both in the pandemic and with the climate crisis that we're in at the moment. So it seems that the pandemic present, as I called it in the opening, is is really asking us to, to step into future visions and maybe say, okay, maybe let's not do this. Maybe let's be responsible about that and be critical of... Or keep in mind, justice, mostly. And I want to go back to uh, Lai's interview in the special issue on futures of Canadian studies uh, with the Zeitschrift of Canadian Studies that uh, came out earlier this year. Still in the pandemic, but it came out earlier this year. And when she talks about Canadian literatures and the state of Canadian literatures and the futures of Canadian studies. Uh, And she says... She proposes three different strategies or avenues of exploration. She says Canadian literature was conceived in the first place as a liberatory project, but also a national and colonial one. And that's a a key point. So uh, Canadian literature was a minor literature in the beginning, uh, opposite American and British literature, but it also was marked as a national and colonial one. And uh, she says, basically, we have to abandon the colonial and reframe Canadian literature as such, through sovereignty, the body and relation. So sovereignty is 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 one key word. Then the body um, that remembers pain and that goes through different uh, scandals. The racialized body, the body that uh, interrupts hegemonic narratives, uh, and she talks about literary scandals there. And finally, about relationality. So relation to each other, relation to the world around us, and relation. That's been complicated so much by viruses and by contagions. And she says these are the keys to a socially conscious speculative fiction. That's what I talked about earlier. That reminds us it's not just about saying, oh, the future will be great because we'll have all these fancy technologies. No, it's about saying, how do we make it just? How do we make sure, you know, nobody gets thrown under the bus? And that's key, really.
1: You know, just insert like a tiny, small quote here, because I won't go into the context because that would be revealing so much um, about the end. But there is one quote where one of the protagonists says, you must remember my pain as I remember yours. So um, this very much illustrates the point that you just made in connection to the interview of how do we think relationality? How do we think about the people, the environments that we're responsible for, the, the non-humans were responsible for. And so I think that really comes through here in, in that passage.
2: And the other thing, I mean, this is also, if I could just expound on this <laughs> before we move on, in Station 11, it's also about remembrance and it's also about uh, wanting to be seen. So there's this interview about artists and, and the artists' philanthropists, and I'm quoting here, I've been thinking lately about immortality. So we want to be immortal. What it means to be remembered, what I want to be remembered for certain questions concerning memory and fame. First, we only want to be seen. But once we're seen, that's not enough anymore. After that, we want to be remembered. So again, we have to go back to the archive. What's remembered? How is it remembered? How, is, how are these effective ties, the relations built that people remember scraps, maybe little pieces of paper, and other stuff um, that they start collecting and then some people put them in the archives, some people put them in the museum and some people just carry them around and surround themselves with with, with them. Ina, what do you think?
0: I was just thinking about because I think, still think that there's a kind of difference in both novels with regard to memory and with regard to relationality and individuality and collectivity because, I mean, you just read this quote out in um, Station Eleven at least for some of the uh, plot lines it's very much about this becoming famous becoming remembered as an individual right and also individual artifacts make sense to individual human beings but not so much as a collective um, artifact and i think larissa Lai, also connecting this to the interview she writes against this i mean she really sees this as a co- um, collective uh, memory in the tiger flu and especially with the grist village the emphasis on relationality and collectivity for memory is 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 larger and more important than it is in station 11 and i think that is a a huge difference between the two another um difference is maybe also the fact that in the tiger flu Lie also with the epigraphs, for example, is important to point, uh, um, is, is emphasizing that memory also has to be reevaluated constantly. So it's not something that should be fixed or that it should be put in a museum, but it is something that, well, we have to think about and we have to see as something that we have to, to reevaluate every now and then. And especially if we feel like we are in a different time than before.
1: This is also why I think it's so interesting, or at least it was so interesting for me now in preparation to read these two specifically, like in conjunction with each other, because what what did sort of really impress me is also in Station Eleven this constant sort of reminder what you're taking for granted you might have to think about it a bit more consciously it might be gone tomorrow this kind of thing sort of like somewhere in between a memento mori and a carpe diem trope that that is going on there and yeah also just in a sense this what you just mentioned Ina that what does art mean to the individual how does it affect us but also this idea that some people are just kind of sleepwalking through their lives and um sort of like this it's a bit of a a wake-up call or I think that that's also in there so I found this really interesting in the in the in the reading them together the sort of difference also between like what is the collective what is the individual how does the individual then sort of fit again in the collective I mean we have the traveling symphony and so on they kind of they're very different in a way but they kind of still communicate with each other as two works of of pandemic art
2: yeah and I mean they are you know I think they're very feminist I mean you know do you think they imagine the future as female what do you think about this
1: Inari, you know, go first what we think about
0: this. <laughs> what do you think? I, mean, it's, it's,
2: it's, it's really I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I want you to go first because you're the experts here. So
0: I mean, actually, I, I, I'm going to cite another interview um, by Larissa Lai because she, at some point, even pointed out that she aimed to write about the prototypical lone hero white narrative, such as, for example, Cormac McCarthy, um, The Road. And I would say that her novel, for example, rather links with feminist utopias by March Piercy or Octavia Butler or Ursula Gregoon. I mean, she imagines with the Gris sisters this almost all-female community. And also in Saltwater City, the protagonist is a female protagonist. And then, and that to me is even more striking, is that we don't have a lone heroine, but we have also here on a structural level the focus on relationality. So the future with lie, i don't want to say it's necessarily female because it goes a little bit even beyond that with what we talked about earlier that the future is almost post-human and communal um, which of course are feminist tropes as well and so yeah i would definitely uh, emphasize relationality and responsibility um, with station 11 um, we have well the traveling symphony we have kind of flat hierarchies but everybody has to do what they need to do to survive we also however have like a return to the heterosexual families to having babies living in houses small communities we have a prophet we have religion and we have this kind of end and then that's basically not a spoiler but it ends with some of the characters seen in electrical grid um, even though electricity also basically has been and hasn't existed for a long time so there's this hope to going back to basically a situation how it was before
2: can I just tell our listeners that Ina's cat just <laughs> walked through the frame which is such this a is nice a post-human human podcast but yeah post-human that should have happened pod- while I was talking about
0: the tiger flu not exactly. about station
2: 11 <laughs> so cat says yes
0: yes <laughs> so to summarize um, what I said about station 11 maybe Linda can extend a little on that I'm not sure if I would would be so bold that in a station 11 the future is female
1: yeah, I think, I mean, one point in Station Eleven that I think we can see sort of as that sort of imaginary future is the fact that Miranda writes Station Eleven and that this is sort of her, It's and it's a bit set up in contrast to this moment that Ina just described with sort of, okay, we see an electrical grid. Is that the hope that we can return to... The kind of commodities that we're used to before whereas the vision we have in station 11 which is sort of an intertext an internal intertext that comes back throughout the the narrative is maybe life is going to be entirely different maybe we will never get home in that sense and maybe there is still a beauty in that life and of course miranda as the creator who created it entirely for herself like she never intended to publish it and there's a moment where her then boyfriend says i don't know why you keep doing this and she says well you don't have to understand it it's mine and she sort of takes that agency so that would be like one moment that i could see as maybe this is a more feminist female created different version of the future but also i mean i think that it's at, at some point at some points in the novel, this return to, oh, we just want to settle down, which means, well, the women are going to have babies, and we're going to be in this small communities, local communities,
2: nuclear families. Mm-hmm. Almost back to nature thing, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's kind of strong, even though, I mean, of course, the Traveling Symphony is a different kind of quote-unquote family, and they still have very strong ties, and they have sort of the jealousies and the pet peeves that any kind of family or group would have. But I don't know, I mean, you you came up with, uh, with the suggestion that,
2: you know, the future might be female. So maybe, you know, what what is your reading of that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, I like the contrasting readings uh, of the two novels. I agree that Station Eleven is more conservative and heteronormative, if you want to use that word here, because it, 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 it does tell us happiness can be found in, in this kind of relationship. The Tiger Flu is much more experimental and also uh, much more based on feminist principles that go beyond the institutions of white feminism also it's also intersectional. That and that works a lot better. But that also it's also more mind blowing. So it's more intriguing to me than Station eleven. Station eleven uses Shakespeare plays as as frames. So Miranda, the figure that Linda just talked about, is of course lifted from the Tempest. Uh who she creates her own world, but she's also the the product of her father Prospero's doing on the island in The Tempest. And then we have King Leah, the play that is staged in the beginning, which is basically, you know, you could call it, with Nina Bay a melodrama of beset manhood, because Leah has trouble deciding whose daughter, who, which of his three daughters loves him best. And then he kicks out Cordelia because she, can't, she doesn't lie to him. And uh, that, you know comes the, the decision comes back to bite him uh on the heel so it's really a layering of well-known canonized human conflicts family conflicts with shakespeare if you want that makes up the different layers of station 11 whereas the tiger flu is more experimental and posits the survival of the female or the post-human maybe more than human female solution to the present in which so many things have gone wrong so i think i'm still going to say that both novels propose in some way that the future is female but they say they do it differently and station 11 is more conservative in this vein and maybe also more traditional in its positing of a uh, badass female heroine who goes and kills people and uh who's independent within a system of patriarchy. Whereas that patriarchy has been, I would say, abandoned or comes back only randomly and acts up a little bit in the tiger flu. But everybody basically knows that patriarchy as such has has to be over because the men are basically all dying of the flu.
0: I would agree 100% with that assessment. Uh, I also wanted to... to advertise a compromise maybe and yeah. that would be that the future of speculative fiction is female yeah uh, <laughs> good compromise. Yeah. yeah there's there's actually um, a very good article about it uh, New York Times article which is called the end of the world as she knows it yeah um, which talks about basically speculative fiction and the difference between female authors and male authors and I mean of course this is this is talking in kind of stereotypical terms but of course we have seen a lot of this speculative fiction apocalyptic fiction which is about a a lone male hero surviving in this world and now we see see different imagination about futures and i think that is very important and both texts work in this kind of regard as as different variations of the future that do not need this lone male hero trope to work
1: yeah and maybe i can just very briefly add to this and pick up on on the point of intersectionality steffi that you mentioned earlier that in the tiger flu The world that is left is also one that is probably not white. So we have Saltwater City, which is actually like a term that Chinese migrants used for Vancouver. And we have, you know, names like Chan Ling. We have Chang and Ang, the reference to the conjoined twins um, who appear in the form of like satellite mainframes. Um, But we also have a different, the Coast Salish time place, which seems to be an independent indigenous yes nation or political entity so those are the uh, we have the United Middle Kingdom which is like a conglomeration of Asian countries so we cannot actually assume that anyone in that world is white per se um, and that is also a really interesting point in addition to um, the points that that you know also just made which I think is is also makes for a different interesting kind of you know science fiction also more in the tradition maybe of Octavia Butler mm-hmm. for example-hmm.
2: And of course, it's not, it's not paraded. So uh, in, in the tiger flu, it's not exoticized, but it's, it's presented as, as norm that, you know, so if we're not given descriptions or anything. Uh, it's just normal that there seem to be no, no white people in Cascadia at this point.
1: And this is also actually something that Larissa Lai said in a different interview, that she likes speculative fiction, because you can just start, like, right at the point where you want to be. You don't have to wade through all this, like, heteronormative, like, what is the real world like to get to that point? But in speculative fiction, you have that freedom to just create the world that you want to create, and then people have to deal with it, like, we're thrown into it, and we have to figure it out.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, both, I think, both novels are great reads for their suspense curves, so it's not like, <laughs> it's not like this might sound to listeners like, oh my God, so many big terms, so many things to get your head around. That's not what it is at all. I mean, both are super gripping novels and they work through, I would say as a connoisseuse maybe, uh well-built entertainment literature. They're not super brainy science fiction stuff where you really have to struggle and to be a tech whiz. To go through Lai sometimes asks us to dissolve some riddles by ourselves but she always gives us enough clues and if you're a, an attentive reader you can figure things out and some some things you can't figure out and it doesn't matter because there's still enough action going on like in the quote that linda read from the opening that's actually the it's a, it's a struggle between uh cora and a sex offender right where she's yeah, it's almost a, it's she almost her brother's raped.
1: friend yeah who, her brother's friend who comes by and who's sort of interested in her but who has the tiger flu and this is sort of like one of the opening conflicts where it becomes clear that he has the tiger flu he's afraid of dying I mean they're both just teenagers so but but he like clings to her and she wants to get rid of him she never liked him and of course also sort of like her assertion of agency saying I'm not gonna die just because you are
2: yeah That's that's great, and he—I mean—he basically wants to rape her, with no further interest. He licks her; it's like her face, and it's like—and how yucky can this be? I mean, this guy who's dying and who just wants to have sex and who's just all out of his boundaries attacks her and then they almost fall over the edge of the high-rise building the 40 floors uh, that's that's the the death that's impending in this situation that she's fearing she's not afraid of the tiger flu which is a great moment because it's basically a moment where you know tough luck boy sorry you got the tiger flu I'm not dying because you're dying that's that's this empowering great moment and then she, she of course throws him she does throw him off the roof but she throws him off body but
1: i think also i mean the, the plots are really like you know um a uh, great and also both ways of narrating even though they're very different are really gripping so we already talked about the two different perspectives what i found super interesting and i didn't expect this in that way is that station 11 works with moments of foreshadowing a lot so you will get things like in two weeks this would no longer be possible. Everyone in that conversation was dead, which you think would kind of kill the tension, but it does not. Absolutely not. (laughs) Um, And there are several moments like that. And actually it like hypes up the anxiety, or at least it did for me uh, a lot where you're like, oh my God, what is happening? What is, you know?
2: Yeah. So we'll have to see. Of course, I don't know that we, that we answered all the questions that I asked in the beginning. I'm going to reiterate them, the questions that I have in this pandemic present moment, you know, what's the new normal, how and where will we live? Is there such a thing as normalcy? What will be our cultural archives, our new identity stories, our place in the world after this pandemic, after the climate crisis that we're in right now? Uh, what what does the future hold for us? And does it make any sense to think of the future at this point at all? Does it make more sense to maybe say, let's stay in the moment and see that how, can, how we can fix things here? And um, in whatever kind of artistic conversations that you're faced with at, at museums and exhibitions right now, lo- lots of artists uh, and lots of people are asking those questions and coming back to the concept of the now and an ethical responsibility that we have for the future. The Fridays for Future movement is the best uh, example for this, but we also have to you know, look to the pandemic vaccination policies to say we have to get vaccinated now so we can all be alive hopefully uh, next year or the year beyond that so there's a lot of big questions and i think what is fabulous about these novels is that is that they give us one vista into what the futures could be or maybe should not be like and so i'm taking away a lot of cool stuff from this reading how about you any any famous closing words on this
0: yeah, actually, I have one from from station 11. And that, well, links back perfectly to the beginning. Um, because the survival is insufficient quote, of course, comes up again and again throughout the text. And then towards the end, the clarinet, one of the character actually um, reformulates it a little bit. So she says, she'd been thinking lately about writing her own play, seeing if she could convince Jill to stage a performance with the symphony actors. She wanted to write something modern, something that addressed this age, in which they'd somehow landed. Survival might be insufficient, she showed told Dieter in late-night arguments. But on the other hand, so was Shakespeare. And I think that is a quote that sums it up perfectly.
2: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Yeah, I agree and I also would come back to a point that that Ina mentioned earlier that the role of speculative fiction itself which of course is one way of sort of thinking through these all these questions that you just listed so if you, um you know whether it's how do we live in the now, how do we imagine the future—that these are not the only ways, but they're great ways to think through some of these also ethical questions.
2: Thank you. So we could, re- I think we can say that we can recommend those novels to readers. Definitely, and then I yes. have a very, a very good friend who said about this uh, climate crisis, who said, "If civilization collapses, I collapse too." <laughs> <laughs> and so, I think no reason to collapse now it might be difficult but if civilization does collapse maybe we can we can we can all become
1: and it doesn't and neither not really it it, it
2: doesn't it doesn't so there's hope glimmer of hope we leave our Mm -hmm. listeners with more than a glimmer of hope please stay healthy please get vaccinated if you can and uh, i'd like to thank my guests for today for coming i think this was fabulous thank you so much thank Thank you you for having us (laughs)
0: And just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.